Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. Gene Meserve is off this week. We have breaking news now. The jury has reached a verdict in the case against four men accused of a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Yeah, let's head over to CBS News correspondent Adriana Diaz, who's monitoring the developments from Chicago. Hey, Adriana, um, what, what did the jury decide here? Take us through the verdict. That was CBS News announcing the stunning outcome last week of a high-profile trial in Michigan of four men accused of plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Some say the FBI bollocks the case. I'm going to be back later with my interview of Janet Reitman, a New York Times Sunday Magazine contributor who's been writing about the intersection of law enforcement and white extremism for years. But first, the nightmare in Ukraine. Jean Meserve left us an interview with retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan, now with the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School, about Russia's brutal military offensive in Ukraine which has been marked by civilian atrocities. They talked just before an ominous new development, Vladimir Putin's appointment of a new general to quarterback Russia's campaign there, a general known as the Butcher of Syria. General Ryan, a longtime Russia hand at the Pentagon, who once served as a military attaché in Moscow, said he was already taken aback by the brutality of Russian tactics, which the whole world outside of Russia has witnessed now. Yeah, I did not expect this level of indiscipline, is a word that I like to use, indiscipline among the Russian forces. You know, they've been uh, uh, reforming their military in, a, uh, in a, uh, a significant way since about 2008. And they have made many changes. They've made it smaller. They've professionalized about uh, 64% of their enlisted. They have uh, you know a very professional officer corps, uh, and uh, they, they've done a lot of things to make their military more, uh, uh, I'll say, professional. But uh, what we're seeing in Bucha and in other places in Ukraine, um, it, it goes beyond just in discipline among the troops. It, it it has to have been the scope of it means it has to have been condoned tolerated, uh, maybe even orchestrated by the officer corps, which is a huge shock to me. But um, uh, that's that's the fact on, on the ground. I have read that this is something of a tradition with the Russian military. Is that true? Uh, I think there are examples of Russian brutality in past wars uh, in Chechnya, um, uh, inside their own country, uh, in the Caucasus down there, they uh, um, they were known for brutal uh, suppression of uh, the population and and the uh, fighters against them. Uh, in Afghanistan, there were examples of it too. But you know, in Afghanistan and in Chechnya, you had brutality on both sides. Uh, not to excuse it on either side, but. Um, it, uh, to call it uh, a tradition is is to is to give it some sort of justification. This is a 
this is uh, any Russian officer sitting at the table in normal times will tell you this is wrong and this should not happen. Uh, and uh, so th they know the difference between right and wrong here in this. Do you have any doubt that these are war crimes? No, no doubt. Do you think there ever will be prosecutions? That's a very tough thing. Uh, and I am only speaking from, you know, uh, having uh, watched from afar the process go on and how long it takes to indict people, to bring them to justice and so on. Um, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think we should base our future actions on whether or not uh, these crimes are ever actually, these criminals are ever actually brought to trial, but calling them war crimes and accusing the right people of these crimes, that's important. What do you make of the quality of the troops? We have heard reports of them defecting, of them walking away into the woods, of them abandoning their vehicles. What does that tell you? Yeah. Well, so first of all, uh, you know, a, a young man, and these are all men now because uh, the draft there in Russia is only about uh, uh, men, and there's four, less than 4% of the Russian military is women. Uh, but, uh, you know, a young man before he goes into the uh, military, whether he's American, Russian, Ukrainian, they're all, you know, young men. They're all, they all share the same kinds of uh, experiences, really. Um, but uh, what, what has happened here is that the training of the Russian enlisted has not been as good as it should have been, or as it, as it was thought to be on paper. And uh, this is a combination of just bad training, but also the fact that about 40% of the Russian military is still conscript, which means draftee, and they only serve for one year. I mean, it takes them uh, a couple of weeks to get through the recruiting process, and then they show up at a unit, and within 11 months, they're gone. Do you think the morale problems that we've heard a lot about in the West have been exaggerated? No, I don't think they're exaggerated. I think this is, um, I mean, there's plenty of uh, examples of it, uh, whether these are uh, comments from uh, prisoners of war that Ukraine has, uh, you know, people they've captured or whether there are social media postings and so on. And in fact, um, uh, it will be very interesting to see now, uh, since 1 April and up until July 15th, you have a new draft cycle in the Russian military. So about 134,000 enlisted soldiers are going to leave the Russian force in this next couple months. And they're going to go back home with stories and impressions. And, uh, and whatever morale they had, they're going to take back with them. Uh, and uh, the the impact of those people on Russian society and what they believe and think about this war is going to be tremendous. Logistics is a basic of military operations. And we've heard reports that the Russian soldiers are cold, that they're hungry. Um, they're out there unsupported. Is that surprising? Unfortunately... Uh, well, you know, it's surprising because I thought the new look reforms, the reforms started in 2008, would address those issues. Because if you if you skip over the new look reforms, it's not surprising because this was a uh, uh, a trait of the Soviet and then uh, the, the Russian army in the 1990s. 
um, that uh, soldiers are looked on as temporary workers, really. Even the contract soldiers, which was a new thing for the Russians, relatively new, uh, are, are only expected to serve for a few years um, and conscripts just for one. So, so when a Russian officer would look at these troops, you know, he would say, well, uh, they can tough it out. Uh, they don't need fancy this. So we don't need to spend a lot of money on, on creature comforts because they're only in here for a year and then they move on. And that's just life. It makes them tough, right? It makes them a man. Um, and, and what we're seeing is that if, if it did that, uh, uh, it's not showing up on the battlefield. These are not men. These are people who are um, uh, ill-trained and, and unable really to function unless an officer is standing right behind them. And, and this goes to the point why you see so many senior officers being killed in, in the war, Russian generals and colonels, because the junior officers have not got the leadership qualities or experience to make sure that the tough things that are necessary to do in a war are done. And so the senior officers are coming down to the ranks and the front lines to make sure things get done and that exposes them. Given how many generals have reportedly been killed, is that going to have a huge impact on the Russian military going forward? Uh, well, um, it's, it's not, I mean, there, uh, there are plenty of officers in the pipeline. So no, it's not going to be a, a strategically important issue. It's, a, a it's an issue right now for the current fight because you've got commanders, some of them were put into command notably in the fall. So it must have been handpicked for this war. You know, you're the best commander, we're putting you in this uh, job. Um, the fact that they are now gone, that does cause a problem for the unit. But it's it's not a problem that can't be overcome, and they have plenty of officers in the queue to step up. We have seen uh, Russian soldiers felled in battle, just left on the side yeah. of the road. What does yeah. that do? It goes back to this issue about what the uh, officers think about troops. You know, the, the, these guys are, um, the officers are looking at them as, uh, something that's expendable. And, um, uh, you know, this is not, uh, this is not like a Russian a tradition. This is a Russian practice. Uh, there are plenty of officers in the Russian military who will tell you that it's wrong to do that, that it's important to take care of your wounded, take care of your dead. Um, you know, uh, Suvorov, uh, who was a famous Russian a field commander in the 1700s for the Russians. He never lost a battle. He had lots of uh, great sayings. And one of them was, there's nothing more precious than the blood, a drop of blood of a soldier. And this is a, a Russian officer can quote you that. So he knows what, what should be the attitude toward the soldiers. And yet uh, uh, the, uh, the practice is, is much different. Is it any surprise then that we've seen fragging of officers or seen reports of fragging of officers? No, it's not surprising there. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact that the soldiers don't trust their officers, the officers don't trust their soldiers, uh, that's gonna manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And the soldiers apparently didn't even understand what the mission was. All right, well, this is another, this is another Russian practice, Soviet practice, if you will. The, the idea to keep everything as secret as possible. Uh, 
um, to keep all your war plans secret, to keep even your maps are secret, and and uh, you don't pass them out to uh, people, quote unquote, don't have a need to know, so that if if intermediary commanders are given only the barest of information about the next assignment or the or when the war starts or what your what your follow on missions are going to be, they're basically going you know step by step, and and if the communication breaks down. If the leadership is not there to explain what's supposed to be happening, uh, then soldiers will uh, do what soldiers do, which is they'll they'll take matters in their own hands and they'll stop and they'll they'll go back to wherever they were. The um, expectation had been that the Russians would probably have a pretty easy time in Ukraine. Of course, yeah. the Ukraine forces have performed much better than we expected, but was our intelligence about the Russian military flawed in a serious way? Well, you know, I don't have a security clearance anymore, so I don't know what our intelligence was actually saying about the Russian military. I do, I do have an opinion about the Russian military, and it is, I believe it is close to what the U.S. intelligence community believed about the Russian military. And so if if that's true, then I would say that they are as surprised as I was. Does that reflect on the intelligence community and the quality of the job it was doing? It could. Um, it could, you know. I, I think um, I think that uh, what what we're seeing here are design flaws. You know, on on paper, uh, the new Russian military should work. You know, you have a smaller unit. Uh, you have uh, all this modern firepower. You have new equipment. Um, you have some draftees, but you have more volunteers. You have about a 60, 64% volunteers. So on paper, you can tell yourself, well, this is going to work. But then if you take your military, that, that, that means about 64% of your military is professionally all the way down to the soldier. If you commit 80% of your military, which is what they've done in Ukraine, then there's a gap, right? There's a numbers gap of like 16% that are going to be filled with conscripts and so on. It, I'm not putting all the blame on the conscripts, but but uh, this is a design flaw uh, in in what they're doing. And, and so I think this was a surprise to them as much as it is to us. What does it tell you that they're bringing in foreign fighters? Well, that, that tells me that that uh, we're right to be questioning their ability to replace troops and replace units. Um, they're not only bringing in foreign fighters, they're bringing their own troops back from so-called foreign bases. So in, in Georgia, the Russians have occupied two territories, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, for a number of years. And, uh, and those troops that are the occupiers there are being put on a train and sent to Ukraine because they're simply out of, you know, uh, troops. Every naval infantry brigade is in Ukraine. The fact that they are having these staffing issues, does that increase the likelihood that they turn to nuclear or chemical or biological weapons? Well, there, there can be a connection here. Uh, first of all, I prioritize, uh, rank these in, in likelihood that uh, a chemical weapon would be the least likely of all WMD to be used, chemical and biological, because they don't need to use them to get what they're going for. Um, and uh, 
you know, I think even though uh, Putin has no problem lying, and apparently the military establishment no problem lying to people and around the world, I think they definitely don't want the stigma of having used chemical weapons on them. They're already looking at war crimes uh, accusations. So, but nuclear weapons are a possibility. Um, and I don't, I don't think they're like a 50% or greater possibility. They're a low pos possibility, but they are uh, a possibility. Um, and, and when we hear that Russia is going to have to escalate, either through their comments, uh, they say, well, we might have to escalate if you do such and such. Um, or we hear uh, people in the West say, well, we have to be careful. We don't want Russia to escalate. Um, there's really two kinds of ways of they can three. Let's say three kinds. They can they can increase the violence, which just means bomb more of what they're bombing, and they can do that for a long time. They could uh, throw in new troops and new forces and increase the force, but we've already discussed how they really can't do that now. They're, they're just prevented from it. So the only only other way to escalate is by uh, nuclear uh, weapons. And and uh, th this is why I think people are rightfully concerned and watching and careful. So far, I don't think we're there yet, but um, we won't know until we see it. You have relationships with former Russian military officers. Right. Is it your impression that the military is still loyal to Putin? Yeah, the, the military is, you know, as it is in our country, is the, uh, one of the more conservative establishments, communities in Russia. The con those conservative, they are, they are patriotic. Uh, they, uh, uh, they give the benefit of the doubt on almost everything to their uh, military leadership and to their uh, political leadership. Um, so in, in that regard, they are already predisposed to believe and trust Putin and his inner circle. Now that the war started, uh, they're going to almost entirely support this war uh, because that's what you do if you're a military person. Now, uh, the wild cards here are cr war crimes. You know, every military officer knows that if, if you're getting illegal orders, then, then, uh, then this is a problem. Um, that shows an indiscipline level. That shows uh, a lack of professionalism that some of the officers are going to find impossible to reconcile. Uh, but it's not enough for a coup. We should not be expecting the military to rise up and and oppose the leadership. Um, the um, defense minister disappeared for a while. I think he's resurfaced at this point. But would you expect some heads are going to roll at the top of the military leadership? Yeah, after the fighting. Well, already some heads have rolled. Um, a, a commander of uh, one of the combined arms armies, I can't recall now, I think it's the sixth, has already been relieved of his duties. Uh, he was the guy in the north uh, uh, near Kiev. Uh, I expect that after the fighting, we'll see a lot more introspection, uh, and uh, we could expect to see some uh, people leave. One of the very interesting things about this is that this war is that I have not been able to, and, and most of the people that I talk to observers, and as far as I can tell, the U.S. intelligence community has not identified who the single point of command is for this operation. There are at least four or five combined arms armies commanding units all across uh, two or three fronts. 
normally under Russian and Soviet practice, those guys would report to a one field commander, an operational group commander of some sort. Um, we don't see that person. We don't hear that uh, of that staff. We don't, uh, I don't know where they are if they're there. And which means either they're being very secretive again and successful in keeping that from us, but given all the intelligence failures, I, I kind of doubt that. Um, or the command is happening back at the general staff in Moscow at the National Defense Command Center. And this, this to me, seems like the biggest, the, the most likely situation, which would make Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, General Milley's counterpart, and Minister Shoigu and Putin directly in charge of this operation. So when you go looking later to uh, fix blame for war crimes and mismanagement, et cetera, et cetera, it all hangs on those three people, if, if I'm right that they're the ones running this war. But I don't know if I'm right. How do you think this ends? So uh, my uh, guess right now, well, first of all, we need a, we need a ceasefire. And, both, and, and, and Zelensky's been calling for it forever. Putin will only uh, agree to one once he's gotten everything he thinks his military can get him. And they're not there yet. But the time is running out for him because of the people and the unit problems that we've talked about. So when Putin gets to that point and he thinks he can't get any more, uh, then he'll be open to a ceasefire. But he doesn't have to, and maybe he doesn't even want to, uh, fully agree on all the points of contention here. You know, are you going to recognize Crimea? Are we going to, uh, you know, leave you alone, uh, Ukraine, and so on? So all this give and take, the concessions things. Um, uh, Putin may authorize his diplomats to go and talk about these things, but to my thinking, it, it almost benefits him not to worry about deciding those things. Uh, because then he can, the war would technically be on. There's only an armistice or a truce or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the war is technically still on, which does a couple things for Putin. It allows him to continue strikes when he needs to. Uh, it also keeps, uh, theoretically, it keeps NATO and the U.S. out of Ukraine. Because our policy, right, is that we are not in Ukraine because we don't want to be killing Russians. Um, we don't want to start World War III. So if Putin can keep that, uh, that dance going, then it's to his advantage. I think that's where we're headed. It's a so-called frozen conflict. Do you agree with the approach that the U.S. and NATO have taken towards this conflict? Uh, I would I would allow advisors to go in, uh, trainers. Uh, some, some intelligence uh, things you, you want to supply to the Ukrainians, you really need people on the ground to help get that to the right people. Um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about uh, infantrymen on the front lines. I'm not talking about that. But um, yeah, I think Ukraine uh, deserves our best support. And uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, risks with this, but I really don't think that the U.S. providing the things we're talking about here would be a justification or even an excuse for Russia to turn to nuclear weapons, which is what the big problem is right now, the big concern.
So we've talked a lot about the state of the Russian military. Just a few words, if you would, about the Ukrainian military. What's your yeah. impression? Well, I have to admit that I, I'm not, uh, I haven't been studying the Ukraine military for years like I have the Russian military. But uh, what I've seen is that uh, uh, they, they have a much smaller military. They're much better trained and much better uh, leadership at the lower levels. Um, uh, they, uh, they have done a remarkable job, not only in attriting Russian units in the kind of the defensive, uh, uh, battles that have, uh, uh, that have to be part of their operation because they're, they're combating a much bigger force, but they've been remarkably good and successful when they've mounted some, uh, offensive operations. Uh, they have to be careful because if they get encircled, they're too small. Uh, it's, you know, the, it's the knockout punch that you have to worry about if you're Ukraine. Um, if they get encircled and a large part of their force goes away, then all these things we've been talking about become moot and the Russian military can drive wherever it wants to go within Ukraine because the West is not going in there. So there's only one boxer in the ring with Russia, and that's Ukraine. So they have to avoid the knockout punch. Look forward for me a little bit. What do you see? Uh, traditionally, the power of Russia rests on two pillars. One is its nuclear deterrent, and the other is its conventional ground forces. Well, uh, the react reality is that they're coming out of this where their conventional force is now weaker. It's going to be perceived as being weaker than it was before. And, and they're going to have to go back to relying on their nuclear arsenal as their main deterrent against Western, what, whatever's going on in the West that they don't like. And in some ways, we're going to see a return to the 1980s when we had nuclear weapons, nuclear warheads on intermediate range missiles, Pershings and SS-22s throughout Europe. And, and we were eight minutes away from destroying all the capitals of, uh, of Europe, including Moscow. Uh, that was a very uh, bad time, the evil empire time. And, and uh, luckily, we came out of that. But I don't know. Uh, you know, coming into it now, this is this is the security arrangement that we might stumble into, where Russia is almost totally dependent on its nuclear force, and they begin to build that up with tactical nuclear weapons. That would be bad for everybody. Indeed, it would be bad. That was retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan, now with the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. Russia is now reportedly organizing a massive assault in Ukraine's east. Meanwhile, we hope you're enjoying what you're listening to. Go over to the Spy Talk podcast site and leave us a review. Give us a rating. We'll be back after this. Now, back to that trial in Michigan of the so-called Wolverine Watchmen which ended in two acquittals and two mistrials. Janet Reitman, a longtime investigative reporter at Rolling Stone and now the New York Times Sunday Magazine, has been writing landmark pieces on the intersection of extremism and law enforcement. She's now writing a book for Random House called The Unraveling of Everything, which presents a narrative history of the country's increasingly violent and extremist drift from the 1990s to the current day. I figured she was a good person to talk to 
about that Michigan trial. Janet Reitman, it's so great to have you on Spy Talk. I got to know you about five years ago and became a devoted fan of your work after you wrote a piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, which was entitled, U.S. Law Enforcement Failed to See the Threat of White Nationalism. Now they don't know how to stop it. Looking at the Michigan Wolverines verdict, in which two of the defendants were acquitted outright, mistrials uh, pronounced in two of the others, it seems to be that the FBI may still not have learned how to prosecute these white nationalist extremists. What do you, what's your take? You know, I, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've always been a fan of yours too. You know, I don't, I, I have a lot of different thoughts about this case. Mostly, I think, so number one, um, when I wrote that story in 2018, they really, I really, they, the FBI really didn't know how to handle the situation. I think they, there was a tremendous amount of political pressure put upon them after that my article and, and some others came out to address this issue of you know domestic terrorism. Shall we pass a domestic terrorism law? What should we do? Shall we hold hearings? You know, what, what should we call this stuff? Um, and, and so in a way, you know, I think that was a, that was a positive and that had sort of shown a light on the problem. But when I look at this Wolverine case, you know, what I see is a Department of Justice that in the wake of both the um, El Paso shooting and the Poway shooting, the Poway shooting in, in uh, Southern California, felt this urgency to deal with far-right extremism because you had, you had New Zealand and then you had El Paso. And these mm -hmm. were mass shootings and they were, and they were ideologically motivated. Um, you know, there were manifestos um, and I believe the El Paso shooter had a manifesto and obviously so did the New Zealand shooter. And so it was like, you know, we, you could see how the, the ideology of the far right, which has been out there and circulating and, and you know, sort of informing violence for, for quite a long time now, that this had come to America and it was manifesting in these ways and the government, you know, had not been on top of it and now it, it, it really, it needed to be. So, you know, my understanding is that there was a kind of a, a fire put under uh, the FBI to um, to start getting serious about, you know, these domestic cases. And what generally has happened historically when this, say, for example, if you look at Oklahoma City, after Oklahoma City, similar fires were put under the FBI to go after militant groups and start, you know, looking at these militia groups and looking at all of these, you know, these, um, you know, sort of armed radical groups that perhaps had escaped their, you know, attention or, or that were not um, taken as seriously. And, um, and the FBI, this is back in the 1990s, and the FBI did do this, it rounded up these, some of these militia groups, and it, you know, and the way you would look at some of those groups is they were sort of the rusty nails of the movement. I mean, these are people that oftentimes are kind of doofuses. They were, doesn't mean they're not dangerous. You can be a dangerous, this is one thing I've learned in my career. You can be a very dangerous doofus. Both mm. of them, you can, they can, you can be a complete idiot and you can also be dangerous. You could also be a complete idiot who is absolutely not dangerous and is still going to wind up going to jail if the FBI, you know, 
that, that puts you in the situation. That so, seems to be the case in Michigan, which follows yeah. a pattern where yeah. these were doofuses talking about ridiculous things in terms of Gretchen Whitmer. They were going to, even one of them was about flying a kite and hang her up on a kite. I yeah. mean, uh, kidnapping yeah. her, holding a trial. Uh, and they were stoned all the time, according to, to testimony. Yeah. Uh, and so the FBI took this very seriously of these stoners uh, fantasizing aloud about kidnapping and even executing Gretchen Whitmer. And the mm -hmm. FBI moves in and, and kind of supplies them with the materials to start carrying it out. We've seen this before. What's, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, that is the same methodology that that um that we've seen certainly saw in the post 9-11 era with um with uh, all of these cases that against muslims against muslims you know so these were all of these these you know they what we considered you know entrapment cases you know in many cases there were these were some of these people um you know were, i mean there's a long list of of you know mishaps um and you know Oftentimes, like if you look at the Christmas, there was a Christmas tree bomber, Christmas Eve bomber in, mm -hmm. in Washington state, um, you know, who was found on a website and cultivated and he was a kid, he was a college student and he wound up, you know, getting lured into, um, you know, setting off a fake bomb and, and wound up going to prison for, you know, I don't know how long, I think he's still in there. So we saw this pattern in regard to the notorious Liberty city seven yeah. case years ago so again what's the missing picture here why is it well let me play devil's advocate for a minute the fbi has got to be alarmed when it sees this kind of talk going on in chat rooms and so on uh and and i get the impression that it's sort of flooding the zone yet at the same time they missed the january 6th you know well, build up so can you help, as an expert on this question, can you reconcile these, these two things? Is it because uh, there are too many sympathizers to white nationalism in the FBI? You know, I, I believe that um, based on the reporting I've done, based on the reporting you have done, my friend, I believe that, that you know, law enforcement in general will... Um, has a more, I, look, I think that, you know, the it, it, law enforcement itself, you know, and, and, and any institution, government institution tends to look at white people, uh, you know, as um, the good guys and, and has not traditionally looked at non-white people in the same light and mm -hmm. that has been i mean this is a long conversation but you know the um the sort of um demonization of the muslim community in the post 9-11 era where you know really the fbi had a policy of um of of having to make cases because it needed to to fulfill various you know quotas basically requirements Mm -hmm. And they made a lot of spurious cases. And when, and when that sort of era died down, um, the focus turned to the left 
as it generally does. A focus turned to, um, to anti-government groups like lefty anti-government groups to Black Lives Matter movement. And you see, you know, Antifa. within, you know, Antifa. Antifa is a, a, I don't like to use that term because it's not an actual, this is not Al-Qaeda. Antifa it's is, it's yeah. not a group. Antifa is, Antifa is short for anti-fascist. Okay, so it's a group, these are people that are, they, they, they believe deeply in confronting right-wing fascist ideology and right-wing fascist groups. And so when they see this emerging in our own society, they would show up in mass to protest. Yeah, they're sort and, of like uh, anti-fascist raves. They just, uh, yeah. like, it's like a telephone tree and they say, hey, these yeah. uh, right-wing extremists are going to be talking at some event or doing a protest. Let's show up and harass them. And that's exactly, by the way, what the right does. They do the same thing. So, you know, the far right groups do this to the left and the left groups do this to the right. And, um, you know, sometimes this gets from the perspective of the right. The intention has always been to trigger the left to, um, to, to freak out and get, you know, perhaps get violent. Um, the right certainly would like to get violent. And it, it becomes, it's become very chaotic. It was, you saw it a lot in sort of 2017, 2016, 2017, 2018. But um, I think the thing with the FBI is that, and, and, and law enforcement in general, police, you know, police forces, you know, every, it's not just federal, that um, they tend to look at the enemy as those people who, um, are most unlike them and who might oppose them. And so the left has actually, you're, when you're talking about some of the left, more left-wing groups, these are people that don't like the police. You know, these are people who feel that they've been oppressed by the police, harassed by the police, if, if in the case of Black Lives Matter, like literally oppressed by the police. So the police have seen these people as adversaries and the training that they've received, the anti-terrorism training that they've received has reinforced this idea that Black Lives Matter is a dangerous, could be a dangerous terrorist group, that Antifa is a domestic terrorist group, that all these left-wing groups are anti are, are domestic terrorists. And so they see it that way. That was something that you know I reported on several years ago in this article that you mentioned, like that, you know, here I was, you know, interviewing a lot of you know people who'd worked for DHS and worked for FBI, and they were talking on local law enforcement, they were talking about the, the trainings that were being given that. Um, and even some of these, I met some of these trainers who had been originally focused on like teach, you know, these are like self-described terrorism experts whose job it is to go around and like get these contracts to teach FBI agents or teach um, local law enforcement agents about, you know, the principles of jihad or whatever. And, and as soon as that began to die down, they shifted over to Antifa and they made a career out of this. And now they go around doing that, offering trainings on anarchist groups and offering trainings on Black Lives Matter groups and stuff. So I don't know to what degree, you know, it, these agencies are looking at the far right and understanding them as being dangerous. I think historically, you can go all the way back to the 80s and before that, that um, I mean, it took the F, it took the government a long time to really get tough on the on, on the Ku Klux Klan, right? And in the '80s and the '90s, um, you know, both law enforcement and juries initially found it hard to convict these kinds of people because they look like doofuses. There was this famous case in the in the late '80s that was a sedition case that was brought by by the government by the Justice Department against 
in Arkansas against the leaders of most of the white power groups of the time. These are major leaders, Lewis Beam, Richard Butler from the Aryan Nations, you know, a number of others. And the idea was that these people in their speech, in their speaking are, you know, and in their organi organizations that are nonviolent, quote unquote, that they are actually inciting um, leaderless resistance, that they are, they are basically telling followers to go off and do whatever you need to do. Yeah. And, and they were acquitted. And, you know, so I, it's not a surprise to me that this happened in Michigan. This is sort of in keeping with uh, the, uh, the pattern. I think that the FBI um, made some big mistakes, but I also, I also did not expect a jury in the state of Michigan to, um, you know, throw the book at these guys. Yeah, it was a jury of their peers, you might say. Yeah. Now, this is not just a political issue, of course. Um, um, we know now that white supremacists and other far-right extremists have killed far more people since 9-11 than any other category of domestic extremists, right? Yeah. 71% um, of the extremist-related fatalities in the United States between 2008 and 2017 were committed by members of the far right or white supremacist movements. Islamic extremists were just responsible for just 26% of violent incidents. That's from the Defamation League Center on Extremism. Um, so we're not just talking about getting rid of a political threat to our system, another January 6th kind of thing. We're talking about ongoing violence committed by these far-right groups that may be building toward another storm uh, in 2022 or 2024. I think so. I mean, I, I would expect that something is going to be building over the well, next what, what, years. what needs to change to get the FBI? Is it fair to say that the FBI is not taking this seriously? Is that the right, right way to frame the question? You know, I don't actually think that is that is fair. I just think it's so complicated. I'm not a fan of passing new laws to crack down on, you know, quote unquote, domestic terrorists, because I don't think they're going to be used against the far right. I think they're going to be used, you know, they've historically not been used against right wing people unless absolutely they've had to be and they've been used against the left. They've been used against well, anti-war groups, uh, yeah, civil anti -war rights groups, groups Martin Luther exactly. King Jr., uh, and so on. I mean, you have to under you have to think about what is the established, you know, what is the you know what is the establishment? What is the established mentality? Who is echoing the established mentality? In many ways, white supremacist groups are doing that. Um, you know, anti-war, anti-police. Um, civil rights groups, they are not echoing that mentality. And so you have a lot of people who are in the establishment and law enforcement and these agencies who, you know, do see these other folks as more of an enemy than they do the far right. And the far right has understood this. The far right, right has tried to make common cause and they, they have infiltrated law enforcement agencies or they have just, and they have, you know, in many cases, they have just found common cause with one another like organically, because they share, you know, many of the same ideas. Like one of the leaders of the Charlottesville rally in 2017, 
who was a big white nationalist propagandist um, kind of leader, foot soldier, um, is a guy named Nathan Domingo, was, um, is a former Marine and was uh, the son of a, a son and grandson of law enforcement officers. And he just comes from, you know, a law enforcement military milieu. So, you know, can that kind of a person communicate with a fellow military law enforcement person? Of course, you know, can they speak similar language? Can they, do they look similar? Are their haircuts similar? Do the way they carry, is the way they carry themselves similar? Yes. And that kind of stuff, you know, matters. I mean, in a very tribal society that like we live in, I mean, this stuff matters. So I, I don't, but in terms of answering your question, what, what, what can we do? One thing I think we could do that we're not going to do um, mm. is to, <laughs> is, so there's this, there's this whole kind of decision that was made in the, in the Obama era to depoliticize extremism and, you know, in terms of left or right, particularly right, to not de describe these these organizations as right-wing extremist groups, but instead to call them violent extremist groups or, or, you know, white, now they have many, many subcategories, white supremacist, violent extremists, you know, anarchist, violent extremists. And? And whatever, whatever. And that is actually, that describes people who are terrorists. You know, violent extremism is, you know, is, is terrorism, that's violent. But what they're not looking at, I think they should be looking more at, at ideology, not necessarily by spying on people, but by, I guess- Well, how do you penetrate I guess, them I, if you're yeah, not I, I guess, spying on I them? I mean, you do have to spy on them. But or let's use another word than spy. Yeah, let's just say keep track of them. And there seems to be an active program of monitoring Facebook and and other social media for violent, um, you know, known violent extremists and what they're up to. It's very hard, you know, because you know, right? You can monitor Facebook, and they're always going to find other platforms, other technologies. Um. You know, it would be it would be very ironic. I don't think it would happen if if people were actually chased off of social media entirely, off of the electronic media entirely, and went back to organizing in person in like their basement because that's what they used to do. But I don't see that necessarily. Happening. Is that is that I, the thing you said we should do, but we're not going to do? No, I mean, I think that I think that we need to to understand and take seriously the connection between far-right politics and racist far-right rhetoric and violence and right now when it when it comes to say congressional hearings you know that is going to be focused only on violence they're only focusing on the end product and from a sort of from a from a you know a legal standpoint i mean we do want to focus on those people who commit violence or are, you know who are criminals but I think that they're missing, and I'm not, and this question is how to, how to develop this, this kind of understanding. They're missing the steps that lead these people to violence. And the genius of our system, if you will, is that we can reconcile, we can accept everybody, everybody can have their private feuds, but the well, system remains 
intact for resolving these disputes as imperfect as it is. But it seems to be, seems to me, a balance has been tipped here where you've got insurrectionists, pro-insurrectionists inside the government. As you know, I wrote a piece recently about hate speech and pro-insurrectionist talk in classified chat rooms in the intelligence community. You've got people inside the wire who want to get, essentially get rid of our form of government and turn into an authoritarian uh, government with with just, you know, the appearance of democratic means. So... What's, I mean, what's the FBI going to do about that? None of that has ever surprised me. None of that. I mean, people within the FBI also hold some of those views. You know, there's racism, you know, that has been rampant within the FBI. There, there you know, I know of, of one, you know, office in, in Minneapolis and would have been right around the Trump uh the first Trump campaign and election in 2015, 2016, where you had FBI agents coming into this field office wearing MAGA hats. They had their MAGA hats on their desk. I mean, you know, this yeah. is completely un, that's something that would not have been okay in Washington. Yeah. But these the, are, you know. The subject of your piece was FBI, former FBI agent Terry Albury, who right. wrote to me after my piece about hate speech in the chat rooms, and he said, boy, it doesn't surprise him at all. He used to hear it all the time in the kitchenettes and the yeah, squad rooms and so on. Very, very open. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. I, I just think that, you know, so I'm writing a book right now. Um, I love the, the working title. The Albatross. <laughs> that, the unraveling, the unraveling of everything. No, no, it's just my the private, unraveling. My private... the, the working title uh, is said to be the unraveling of everything. Yeah. I mean, because don't you feel that? I think that a lot of people have, are, are feeling that, right? And I think that, you know, the central, um, and this is why sometimes it's hard to answer these questions. Like, I grew up at, in a civil liberties background in a civil liberties home you know, deeply believing in the Constitution and in, in civil rights and in free speech. And that everything was going to get better. Yeah, but there was, but I also believed in, you know, I believe that it was perfectly okay to allow the Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. My dad was somebody who defended their right to do that. And um, because even though we didn't like them, you know, even though we they found their right ideas to free odious, speech. that was, and if we deprive them of that right, they could deprive us of our right. It was to, it was mm-hmm. to protect our rights that you would let some, but you had a basic fundamental understanding that these were fringe characters and that fascism was not actually going to take over your country, that, you know, these ideas were not actually going to make their way into you know, and and that might have been very I, I, more. The more I reported on this book, and the more I think about these issues, the more I realized I was pretty naive that these ideas have always been there. They were there in the 1980s. They've they've been there for a long time, trying to find a foothold, and opportunistically they found one more very recently. And mm-hmm. so you see them manifesting in our culture in a much more obvious way. But these are not new ideas. They've been part of our culture for a long time. And I think like one of the you know, what's unraveling is the myth that we have, that we tell ourselves, particularly white Americans, that we tell ourselves about this country. We tell ourselves our country is good, fair, just, safe, better than others, democratic, 
And in fact, you know, that that's debatable on many levels. And I think that we've seen these cracks in sort of this myth, the cracks in the fissure of this myth over the past say 20, 25, 30 years really begin to manifest. And so what, what I think you saw on January 6th was the, the explosion of all of that. It was like this kind of like, ugh, like an apocalyptic blah that happened that was building and building and building and building for quite a long time. It wasn't just the process, you know, the, the, it wasn't just QAnon or Trump or something else. It was something, you know, Trump to himself to me is like a symptom of this stuff. So last question, mm -hmm. Janet Reitman, do you expect them to be back in Washington or at other state capitals in 2022 and 2024? Or do you expect this resistance to take another form? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, cynically, my expectation would be, no matter what happens, that the um, the truly dangerous people, the people who who I consider most dangerous because they they are either the ideologues, the true believers who who you know have long term, long range plans, um, or the ones who are super super violent, that they they may escape the view of law enforcement who are focusing on the most obvious characters who oftentimes are like, you know, they're, they're stoner doofuses, right? Um, and so you may find a situation like what we had with January 6th where it took them a really long time to, to do anything. And that's a very cynical view and that, because that's been the pattern. That's, that's our pattern. So are they gonna change that? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally don't see if January 6th did not wake this country up and wake up our, you know, our law enforcement agencies and our government agencies to the fact that we could have easily just lost our democracy, you know, if, if ha the fact that half of the country to some degree or another believes in the big lie, you know, or believes in some version of it, or doesn't see what happened on January 6th is so bad, you know, maybe it wasn't as shocking as everybody says it is. Maybe it wasn't even real. You know, the fact that 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 there are two versions of truth is, you know, that's a central core problem, I think. And so it's hard to really make a prediction because what I might predict, what I might see, that's according to the truth that I believe in, which I believe is the truth. But there are people out there, there are many other people that believe in a very different set of facts. And, and many of them are inside our government. I mean, you know, like, do you need them to storm the Capitol? You just elected a bunch of them. Like, hmm. you know, I mean, you know, like, you know, Paul Gosar was like, just had to disavow that he was going to a Hitler's birthday party. Oh, I didn't know. You know, I didn't realize it was Hitler's birthday. But I was invited by neo-Nazis, you know. Well, on that grim note, we have to leave it today. Janet Reitman, thanks so much for your time and sharing. And we're going to be keeping an eye on the FBI's performance and uh, what it's doing or not doing to stop this threat of losing our democracy. So we'll have you back again. Thank you. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. That was Janet Reitman. You can find a detailed look at that trial, by the way, over at the Spy Talk page on Substack, where our contributing editor, Jonathan Broder, drilled down on FBI mistakes in the Wolverine case. You can also find it at Twitter at the talk underscore spy page or my own handle at spy talker. 
Gene Meserve is there at Simply Enough. Gene Meserve. And do follow our Spy Talk podcast online at Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. And leave us a review, too, or a tip. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. We really love to hear from our listeners. Gene will be back next week. Until then, keep the poor people of Ukraine in mind. And if you can, donate to one of the many charity organizations helping people there. Or as they used to say, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.